If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 60? Isaiah 60, as we continue through the book of Isaiah, uh, Lord willing, finishing on the last Sunday of, of this year in our study in this book. Two weeks ago, we were in Isaiah 59. Let's remember where we were. Uh, and in Isaiah 59, we were brought to one of the most heartfelt sections of repentance and lament over sin in the whole book of, of Isaiah. The righteous remnant of, of God's people that is left there cries out to the Lord, listing the sins that fill their nation and lamenting their participation in those very sins. They, they see the depth of their sin. They're angered and broken by it. They take full responsibility for their iniquity and all of the consequences of it. But tragically, even in seeing it and admitting it, they're unable to do anything about it. They can't save themselves. They can't save themselves from themselves or from the justice of God. And so we read with joy in Isaiah 59, 16, that when the Lord saw that no one was able to intercede for and save his people, his own arm brought salvation. It's Isaiah's equivalent of Paul's words, when we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And in the verses that follow, the Lord comes as the anointed conqueror who destroys all of his enemies and redeems all who turn to and trust in him. From a place of deep despair comes jubilation at what the Lord is able and willing to do for his repentant people. Structurally, just thinking about how these verses break down, the end of, of chapter 59, beginning in verse 15 through uh, the end of, of that chapter, this description of God's glorious salvation through the judgment of his enemies and the redemption of the faithful actually marks the beginning of a new, smaller section in the center of this final uh, major section of Isaiah. It runs from Isaiah 59, 15 through Isaiah 63, 6. Uh, the Messiah is seen to be the anointed conqueror at the beginning of this section, Isaiah 59, 15 through 21. And then again at the end of this section in Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. And then sandwiched in between here, are, are between those two parallel revelations are three descriptions of the fruit that has come and will come from Jesus the Messiah's work as the anointed conqueror. So beginning anointed conqueror, end anointed conqueror, and then three descriptions of the fruit of his work as the anointed conqueror in between those two sections. It's a beautifully structured thing. And at the heart of these three descriptions are the city of Zion. And not the, the Zion of Judah's present that had been destroyed by invading armies and defiled by Israel's sin. And not even the rebuilt Zion that would become a reality after some of the exiles returned and rebuilt Jerusalem. Rather, this is a description of the coming perfect city of Zion and of the redeemed people of God that will fill it. This is not simply the Jewish capital city, but this is the kingdom of God in all of its fullness described here. I wonder if there's a place that you'd like to go, that you love to go to. Maybe it's a vacation home that you've gone to many times, or, or even just a vacation spot that fills you with joy. Or maybe thinking about our own city, there's a park that you really like to go to, or a, a restaurant that you just 
love. It's warm and it's inviting. It's filled with different memories. Maybe you just like your house. Uh, you love going home at the end of the day. When you're done with work, you are excited to head back to your address. For the, the people of Israel, the place that they loved, the place that they longed to go, longed to go to more than any other was Zion. It was Jerusalem. It was a city that marked them, and the, the rhythm of their years was actually punctuated by pilgrimages to that place. Their, their minds held these fond memories of Jerusalem. If you opened up the family photo album of, of any Israelite, there'd be pictures of their family gathered at Jerusalem for the different feasts that they had. It was the place that they ached for, that they loved to go to during good days, but also during the exile. They missed Jerusalem. They cried over her broken down walls. In the words of the psalmist, the, the highways to Zion were in their hearts. Isn't that a beautiful description? Uh, they were always heading back to Zion in their minds, hoping for the, the full realization of its glory. And Isaiah tells us here that the glory of Zion, the city of God that actually all of God's true children long for, it's coming. And it's coming in a unique and an eternal way. He describes for us here just exactly what Zion will be like. And in doing so, he invites us to, to behold the perfect kingdom that is coming and to be changed by the hope of that coming. This is what he says to us today. He says, fix your eyes on the future glory and reflect its blessing in the present. That'll be our big idea for today. Fix your eyes on the future glory, the future glory of Zion. Look forward to it. Fix your eyes on the future glory and reflect its blessings in the present. We're called to look forward to what God's city will be like, and then to allow that reality to change who we are here and now in the present. Fix your eyes on the future glory and reflect its blessings in the present. Uh, understanding and rightly applying this passage, I think, has helped a lot by remembering what we often refer to as the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. Simply put, the, the coming of Jesus and the work of redemption means that God's kingdom has broken into the world. And it's here through his spirit indwelt people. Its blessings are even now coming into the world. Zion is here. However, there is much more to come. The brightness, the abundance, the peace, and the permanence of the perfect Zion are not yet here. Already, but not yet. Verse 1 sort of gets us into this mindset in a few ways. Look at Isaiah 60 verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The verse begins with the command, arise, shine. And it's built, that command is built on the truth that light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon us. And in Jesus, the light and the glory of God has come. However, what Isaiah is going to describe here in the rest of this chapter has not fully come. The, the light, therefore, is a present reality and also a future hope. And yet, even in that tension of the already and the not yet, we are still commanded to act. We are to arise and shine. And so if you hold all of those things together, maybe it helps make sense of that big idea. Fix your eyes on the future glory, but also reflect its blessings here in the present. So today, I want us to fix our eyes on the future glory of the perfect Zion. And to do that by seeing four characteristics that describe what it's going to be like. And along the way, we'll consider how by the power of God's Spirit, we can uh, reflect those 
these blessings in our world. The four characteristics are light, abundance, peace, and permanence. I'll repeat those as we go, but they're light, abundance, peace, and permanence. And while we're going to see these characteristics in specific sets of verses, there's also a sense in which this chapter just builds on itself. And all of these things are woven throughout the passage as a whole, each section building on the next. But as we fix our eyes on the future glory of the coming Zion and try to reflect its blessings and its character in the present, the first thing we see in Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 3 is that Zion will be a place of light. Look at Isaiah 60, 1 through 3, and think about this word, light. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Light is a favorite picture for Isaiah. He uses it more than any of the other prophets. And and it's one that's actually very easy for us to grasp, isn't it? What's the opposite of light? Darkness. And in the context of these chapters, Isaiah is speaking about the light that the Messiah is bringing. In contrast, he's saying this light is in contrast to the description of the human condition that we read Back in Isaiah 59, verses 9 through 10, the people lament and they use these words. We hope for light and behold, darkness and for brightness. But we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. We are trapped in darkness. But now we find that the light has come. It's come on the blind. It's come on those that are trapped in darkness and gloom. It's like the sunrise on a cold winter morning, just bringing unique light and warmth. And it's not simply light, but it says, it's it's your light. It's our light. It has risen on us and it has a deep effect on us. It is a life-changing light that transforms God's people who trust in the light of the Messiah. It's almost time to start watching It's a Wonderful Life, one of my favorite movies. And and in that movie, George Bailey takes a unique approach to flirting with Mary when he tells her he's going to lasso the moon for her. It's kind of things you say when you're young and in love, right? And she plays along and she says, I'll take it. But then what? To which George says, well, then you could swallow it and it all dissolve. And the moonbeams would shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. It's a really strange response when you think about it. Uh, The eavesdropping neighbor thinks it's strange too. So he says, why don't you kiss her instead of talking her to death? (laughs) But that image has been in my mind, this image of, of someone swallowing a light and having it transform them so much that their entire being just shines forth with radiance. That's what the gospel light does. Maybe you don't want to think about swallowing the moon. So just think about how the moon actually functions. The moon has no light of its own, in fact, but rather it reflects the light of the sun. And that's the response of each of us who have repented and trusted in Christ. We have no internal light in and of ourselves on our own, but the light of the gospel, both its present reality and its its future radiance, they transform us so that we reflect Jesus and therefore shine as lights in this dark world. We're made, as Jesus says, a city on a hill, 
We are the light of the world, reflecting his glory into the gloom and the, the blindness of this present darkness. We were reflected as individuals, and we reflected as the people of God as a whole. We reflected as a church. And verse 3 tells us that all of our shining and reflecting draws people. It draws the whole, all of the nations to the Lord. All peoples come to Zion, drawn to the light of God's transformed people who have been transformed by his beautiful gospel. There's echoes of creation all over this passage, but especially in these verses where God spoke into the darkness and the chaos. And what did he say first? Let there be light. And in the gospel, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we are called then with unveiled faces to reflect the glory of God in this world and draw the nations to the Father. The glory of God is seen most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ and in the work that he has done. Therefore, we shine most brightly when we speak the truth of the gospel into the darkness. When we say to those that are blinded by sin that the light of salvation has come in Jesus that the darkest of days when Jesus was crucified for our sins means that our lives and one day the entire world can be flooded with eternal light. Brothers and sisters, God's word says to us, arise and shine. We are commanded to reflect the light of the gospel in the world by proclaiming that Christ has come and by living lives transformed by his love. Zion is going to be a place of light in the future. And we are called to reflect that light here and now in the present as a preview of what is to come. Zion is a place of light, but in verses four through nine, Zion will also be a place of abundance. Abundance. Let's look at verses four through nine. God's word says, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Zion will be a place of abundance. We live in a world that is marked by scarcity. There's always a, a threat that there's not going to be enough. I'm learning that as my kids get older and we need to start making more food. There's always the threat that there's not going to be enough. <laughs> Truth be told, though, many of us only experience scarcity or lack in, in non-essentials. The current supply chain crisis, if you want to call it a crisis, may mean that we don't get everything we want as fast as we want it but we're probably going to have everything we need. Gas prices are getting a little high, but 
we can still get fuel. And yet there are those who truly live hand to mouth. They wonder where their next meal is going to come from. They, they're alone. They don't have a support system or friend, of friends and family who can care for them. When we think about Isaiah's original audience, we do well to remember that the people of Judah knew what scarcity was. Exile wasn't just a slight disruption to their lives. It marked their lives forever, like the, the generation that went through the Great Depression here in the United States. But the, the hope of Zion is that it's going to be a place of abundance, an abundance of many things. But here we see it, it's abundance of people, an abundance of prosperity, and an abundance of praise. Verse 4 speaks of an abundance of people. The, the righteous remnant would no longer be small and despised because the nations, as well as all the scattered sons and daughters of Jerusalem, are going to return. In about a week and a half, uh, some of us are going to be traveling for the Thanksgiving holiday. We'll hit the highway and we'll head home, whatever home might be, for small family reunion, reunions in hometowns and other, other places. And there's a day coming when every member of God's family of faith is going to return to maybe a place we've never been, but it's still returning. We're going to enter into the, the new Jerusalem, the holy and the perfect Zion. Oh, then what raptured greetings on Canaan's happy shore. What knitting severed friendships up where partings are no more. Then eyes with joy shall sparkle that brimmed with tears of light. Orphans no longer fatherless, nor widows desolate. Jesus is preparing a place for us. And what a wonderful homecoming that's going to be. Overflowing with all the the members of the family of faith. You know, even if we have everything that we could want, there are still people that we miss. But if they died in the Lord, then they will be with us in the new Jerusalem. There's going to be this abundance of people in Zion, people that are God's children, and an abundance of, of prosperity. I like that it starts with people. People are the real treasures in our lives, aren't they? But then we move to prosperity. Verse 5 says that the wealth of the seas, probably meaning nations only reached, only that, that can only be reached by ship at the time, that they're going to come into Zion. Verse 6 says that the, there's a multitude of camels that are covering Zion, meaning that they're bringing all these, these riches in. Verse, uh, verse 6 talks about these, these camels that are filling the city. They're, they're even camels carrying gold and frankincense. I don't know how that can't be a, a prophecy of the wise men that, that have that come to worship Jesus. It reminds us that the, the Magi, they came to worship Christ and his birth and his arrival and the coming of the wise men, they're all signs that the Messiah has come and nations will be drawn to him. The story of these travelers worshiping Jesus is in fact a foretaste of the abundance that will be brought into Zion in worship of the Lord. The treasures of the nations are going to come into Zion. Flocks and sheep and rams are going to arrive as sacrifices to the Lord. And the abundance of people and the abundance of prosperity all lead then to an abundance of praise. The people coming into Zion aren't coming on some purposeless holiday. Verse 6 says that everyone who comes will also bring the praises of the Lord. And verse 9 says that the people and the prosperity that fills the city will be brought in for the name of the Lord our God. The treasures 
of the nations are given to the Lord and the flocks are offered in worship to him. All of this abundance of people and prosperity and praise mark this city as beautiful. You might think about your favorite parts of all the cities that you've ever been in. Favorite landmarks that you visit or the green spaces that are in the middle of cities or the waterfronts, or just all the beautiful places. Or think about all of the beautiful people that are in the world. All the wonder of culture and food and traditions. Zion is going to be more beautiful than any city or nation has ever been because it's going to combine all this beauty of people and prosperity into one city built for the glory and the praise of God. And as we wait for that city, we're invited to reflect it in this world. How can we reflect that? Well, we reflect it in the God's people that are gathered into our churches as our doors are open to all people who would, who would desire to come and worship God in Christ. We reflect it even as we invite many people in and then welcome those traditions and those customs of others and celebrate with them. We reflect Zion in the generosity that we have, that we give of our abundance to anyone who is in need. We reflect Zion and its abundance when we enjoy all of God's good gifts that are given to us in the present to point forward to the future. We reflect Zion in our worship as we seek to live our lives and, and use them for the glory of God. When we welcome all people and we are generous to all people and we enjoy all of God's good gifts and we worship the Father with all that we are, we give a picture of what the coming Zion will be like. And in living in that way, we invite others to enter the gates of Zion through faith. We arise, we shine for the glory of God. This future Zion, it's what a beautiful picture. It's, it's marked by light. It's marked by abundance. And third, it's marked by peace. By peace, verses 10 through 14. Let's read those verses. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come, bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Peace. History of, the history of Israel was, was marked by insecurity, ups and downs, prosperity and then invasion, strength and weakness. And while the Lord has, has struck his people in anger, he is now having compassion on them. We saw how the, the nations were attracted to the light of Zion and the abundance of people that entered into those gates. And now we see that this abundance of people is coming in and they're building up the broken down walls of Jerusalem. And as they continue to come, bringing their treasures to beautify this city, the gates never close. You close gates because of threat, but there is no threat in this city. 
Verse 13 has them coming in and they're bringing material reminiscent of the treasures that were brought to build Solomon's temple. And as they come, there's no threat of them coming in to destroy the city. Verse 14 says that they, they come in bending low and bowing before the feet of the Lord and his people. But what about those who won't bow? That's clear. Actually, it's the center of, of these verses for in verse 12. It's clear that the, the threat of enemies is gone, not only because God has transformed his enemies into worshipers, but also because God has judged those who would not bow before him. Verse 12 says that those nations who do not come and worship to the Lord will be judged. There's peace for God's people. There's peace for all who repent and trust in the Lord. But there's no peace for those who reject the Lord. Friends, there's no peace apart from Jesus. He has come as the, the light of the world. He has made peace through the blood of his cross by paying the penalty for our sin and rebellion on our behalf. And the gospel holds out two paths for us. Repent and trust in Jesus who died in our place and offers us life and forgiveness or continue in rebellion and face God's wrath on the last day. And so I invite you, if you have not, then come. Come to the light and the life that are found in Jesus. Receive the peace of the coming kingdom even now. Like Israel, we often live in a place of insecurity. In general, our world is very volatile. It's violent. And for the follower of Jesus, there are threats and there are persecutions that we face and that our brothers and sisters around the world face even more so. But in the future Zion, there will be perfect security, perfect peace. There will be no more secret churches, no more martyred Christians, no more violence. No more war. No more locked doors. Gates open all the time. And the security of the future city actually is what gives us security now. Because we reflect the, the peace of this coming city by living in peace now, despite the threats and the fears that we might face. Our confidence and our hope is not in this world or in some sort of peace that can be offered by this world. Our hope is not in preserving our lives at all costs here because our hope is of a city that's marked by peace and security. And that hope allows us to endure the present difficulty we face. Zion is a city of light. It's a city of abundance. It's a city of perfect peace. And finally, it's a city that's marked by permanence. Permanence. Look at verses 15 through 22. As I read, maybe you'll take note of forever or everlasting language that's in these verses. Isaiah 60, beginning in verse 15, Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever. A joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. 
I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Verse 19, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Permanence. Permanence isn't all that comes out in verses 15 through 22. In fact, they draw together a lot of the themes that we've already seen, and they show the, the deep transformation that the Lord is going to bring to his people. In fact, transformation might be the key word, especially in verses 15 through 18. In verse 15, God's people move from being a forsaken and hated city that no one even wanted to walk through to being a majestic and joy-filled city. There's that metaphor then in verse 16 of, a, of nursing at the breasts of nations and kings. It's a bit strange to our ears to hear those words, but think of the transformation that that describes. God's people are often despised by the nations, hated and, and rejected in this world. But a day is coming when instead of being hated and despised, there's going to be a deep, loving, and intimate relationship that is shared between all who come into the Lord's city to worship him. God's people are no longer going to be despised or exploited by rulers or politicians or kings, but rather they're going to be comforted and fed. All of this leads, verse 16, not to the praise of earthly rulers, but to the praise of the Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our mighty God. More transformation occurs in verses 17 and 18. Good and, and strong materials are replaced with stronger and even the best materials in Zion. Nothing cheap there. My kids love the, the game um, Minecraft. I don't know if you guys play Minecraft, but I was thinking about this verse with all these things being transformed. And I asked, you know, they're always telling me about the different things that they can mine, the different substances that they can get. And they're, they always get better, you know. So you start with a wood sword, but you really want a diamond sword because that, that's the best one. Uh, you can build a house out of cobblestone, but if you could build a house out of, Obsidian, is that right? That's virtually indestructible. And in a similar way, in, in God's kingdom, all of the good things, the, the wood and the cobblestone, are replaced by the best things, by the, the diamond and the obsidian. And it's not just these material possessions of the kingdom that are transformed into the best, but the leaders in Zion are the best. Remember how the leaders in, in Judah had failed them so often? Well, now the Lord is their overseer, and his rule, we're told, is marked by peace and perfect righteousness. And because of this, verse 18, violence, devastation, and destruction are never heard of again. There are words that are forgotten. Can you imagine in the New Jerusalem that there's no need for your dictionary to have the word violence or devastation or destruction? Because it doesn't exist. They're forgotten in the new kingdom. They're replaced by talk of salvation, peace. 
And the most amazing thing about all of this transformation is that it's permanent. Over 2,000 years ago, there was a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus. I think that's how you say his name. He said this, the only constant in life is change. (laughs) There's some truth to that. Our lives are filled with impermanence and transience. Things are always changing, disrupting our lives, throwing us off. The weather changes. The time changes. Some of us are still recovering from that one hour from last week. Uh, The menu at your favorite restaurant changes and your favorite dish is no longer there. Your class at school changes. Your teacher changes. People come into your life and leave and things change. Think of all that's changed in your lifetime. Think of all that's changed in the last year. History history is marked by change. But the interesting thing that the scriptures show us is that that, that while all this change is happening, the Bible tells us that history is moving towards a particular point. And when we get to that point, the change stops. And it's eternally glorious. It's permanently good forever. That's not to say that the future is going to be monotonous because change you know, brings some fun. That's not the point. But rather that nothing is ever going to disrupt all of the good and all of the blessing that is in the new Zion. Nothing will ever change that. My wife and I played Settlers of Catan once with some family. Once. <laughs> and in the game, as far as I remember, you're building roads and settlements and, and cities. And you can move along fine building all the things that you want until the robber shows up. Someone will take the robber and put it on your spot and you have to give something up or stop doing it. I don't remember much about it, but I remember that Andrea was so frustrated by the robber because she didn't want the robber and she didn't want to give anyone the robber. She just wanted to build. She just wanted to make lovely roads and nice cities and beautiful settlements and she didn't want any robbers. And in the new kingdom, there's no robber. Nothing that will stop progress. Jesus says that Satan is a thief who wants to steal and kill and destroy. But Christ desires to give us abundant life. And in the new kingdom, nothing will ever hinder the abundant life that God wants to give us. Not even the setting of the sun. Fatigue and night, they they hinder our progress. The sun goes down and the farmer can no longer harvest his crops or you can't rake your leaves. The day is over. And when the day's done, you've got projects that you wanted to finish that you can't finish anymore. But in the new kingdom, there are not only no more enemies, but there's no more night. Did you see that in verses 19 and 20? The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. So beautiful. No wonder John just copied Isaiah. (laughs) Motyer offers this summary of this final transformation in verses 19 through 22. The old physical forms of light are replaced by new spiritual light and changes and fluctuations are past due to the perpetual divine presence, bringing with it unbroken joy. There will be full enjoyment of the great salvation God has accomplished, eternal security because of the divine work of planting and sufficiency for every eventuality. All this is sure of fulfillment 
by divine guarantee. No more night. No more mourning because of death. No more lamenting over our sin or because of the sin of the world. No more moving. No more leaving. All of this because of the full everlasting presence of the Lord. Twice it says that what changes all of the darkness of the world is this. The Lord will be your everlasting light. We know that Jesus has come as the light of the world and his spirit dwells within us, never to leave us. And so we shine as lights in this world. We are little moons filling this world, reflecting the light of the true sun. But when the sun rises, the moons fade and all glory is given to the sun for all eternity. This all sounds a little too good to be true, doesn't it? Maybe it is. I mean, will it ever happen? Will this fullness ever really come? In verse 22, the Lord assures us that it will come, and he does it in a way that he often does, by giving us his name. Think back to Moses. When Moses asked the Lord how he could convince the Israelites that the Lord really had sent sent him and that he really was going to deliver them, what does the Lord say? He says, tell them my name. Tell them my covenant name. And here the Lord says to we who wonder when he will come and if he will come and can he really do all this, he says at the end of verse 22, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. He is the Lord. And and here uh, he is the covenant-keeping God. Remember what Isaiah has been hammering in our heads, that our God is the only one who can determine what to do and bring it to pass. And he has promised that he will do this and he will bring it to pass. He does whatever he pleases. He accomplishes all of his will, and he assures us that the time will most certainly come, to which we say, even so. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until he comes, we fix our eyes on the future glory not so that we can just get lost in it, but so we can be transformed by it and reflect its blessings here in the present. We live lives that show forth the light and the abundance and the peace and the permanence of the coming kingdom. And we do it all by the power of God's spirit within us. And we do it all to the praise of his glorious name because that's where it's all going towards eternal praise to our great God. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word, and I will pray for us. Father, there is so much darkness and scarcity and volatility and change in our lives and in this world. And we wonder if it's ever going to change. Thank you for this picture of the Zion that is coming, of the Zion that has come in Christ and that will come in its fullness when he returns. Father, fill our eyes with this vision of what is coming 
so that we are filled with your light here and now so that we can arise and, and shine in this world, reflecting your glory, reflecting the glory that has come in Jesus, reflecting the glory of this Zion that will be. Lord, may we do that as individuals. May we do that as families. May we do that as a, a church. May we do that as the worldwide people of God, that we would in some way reflect the beauty of your coming kingdom. We can't do it on our own, Lord, so would you help us? And would you come quickly? Lord, we often grow weary. Give us the strength that we need, but also, Lord, would you, would you come and make all things new? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.